0: Welcome to this uh, Erev Shabbat morning. For anybody listening who isn't in the room, this is Rabbi Stephen Carr Rubin. This is not Rabbi Amy Bernstein with a lower voice, uh, because Rabbi Bernstein is at camp still, having a wonderful time with her daughter. But it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the Torah portion this week is Ekev, which is Deuteronomy begins chapter 7, verse 12. And um, those of you who have been, some of you, I think, every once in a while see one of my little uh, Torah minutes that I've been doing. Um, This week's Torah minute is from Cannes, France. So we'll see a little 52 seconds from France. But anyway, if you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to me afterwards. I'll send it to you. 52 seconds of talking about the Torah. Um, This week's portion is filled with so much stuff that we're not going to talk about any of it. No, we're not going to talk about a lot of it because there's so much in it. You know, here we are, of course, in Deuteronomy, uh, which the whole book for me is uh, one great ironic experience because uh, I'm always conscious of the fact that when we meet Moses... At the burning bush, that Moses, the Moses burning bush experience. And uh, we all remember, and God says to Moses, you know, I got a job for you. Go back to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, what does Moses say? Probably me. <laughs> no, not me. And what excuse does he give God. Can't talk. For, I can't talk. Speech. I'm slow of speech. I like—I don't know. I'm an impediment or something. But he says to God, "I—you know—I'm the wrong guy for this job because I'm not a good talker." Well, the whole book—it's only five books of the Torah: Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The whole book of Deuteronomy is one gigantic, to gigantic speech by Moses. So obviously, he's learned to talk over the last forty years. He's figured out. You know, which is good. It's also a good role model that, you know, you can learn at any age. After all, he started that experience at age 80 uh, and then learned a new skill, how to talk, obviously. Because here he is giving this big farewell speech in which the whole book of Deuteronomy is, you know, sort of reviewing everything that's gone on, reminding everybody. Uh, I always think of that as um, the you're going off to college speech, a parent to a child knowing, you know, they're about to leave the house and go off to college. And what can I tell them, remind them of everything I've allegedly taught them for the past, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years. Depends on how old they are when they're going off to college. That I want you to remember when I'm not around. You know, I want you to hear the your parents' voice in your head when your parent isn't around. That's kind of what Moses is doing. Moses is saying, I want you to hear my voice in your head, God's voice through me, because that's how God speaks to them through Moses I want my God's voice through my voice in your head when I'm gone because you're about to cross over and go into the promised land and the first thing you'll do is forget everything I taught you um, so remember and so that's pretty much what all Deuteronomy is God is Moses saying here's what you should remember and here's what you should remember and here's what you should remember and here's what you shouldn't forget about what happened what God did for you and what God taught you so we have repetitions of things. We have the Ten Commandments again. We have the Shema again. We have all these things over and over again to remind the people of what happened and what God and what gave and what God gave them, and and the laws and the rules and the and the expectations of behavior. Um, and we have this week's portion, which begins. It's called Ekev because that's the first, of course, significant word in the in this portion. V'haya. Ekev, Tishma'un, which um, is usually translated if. (laughs) In fact, if you read the English, the very beginning, it says, and if, the Haya Ekev, and if you obey these rules and observe them carefully, then, right? It's the classic, if you do the right thing, then good things will happen. So what's the obvious next sentence? If you don't do the right thing, bad things will happen. So what kind of God is that?
1: Like everybody else. It's
0: a just God. <laughs> a just God. A punishing God?
1: A punishing God, a God, of a God of choice.
0: God who gives you choice.
1: An intervening God.
0: An intervening God. A God who is like present there watching you. It's the Santa Claus God. God is, you know, knows if you've been naughty and knows if you've been nice. And keeps track. And you either get uh, coal in your stocking or you get, you know, a bicycle under the tree. What a terrible analogy (laughs) Ah, for a Jewish group. Um, Anyway, so, but it's like that's the God we have. Right, It's like crime and punishment. It's the God who rewards or punishes. It's a very uncomfortable God for me. Uh, You remember Harold Kushner's uh, famous book, which is usually misquoted, um, but um, the title, which was When Bad Things Happen to Good People, but uh, very often people say, you know, Not when God thinks, but why do bad things happen to good people? So, um, if in this theology, do bad things happen to good people? Seems to me the answer would be no. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Except for, uh, it's not exactly our experience of the reality in life. That God makes more sense to me. This one. That one, yeah. You know, it's like clean. You clean you wouldn't you know, wouldn't that be nice if all the bad people got punished? <laughs> what would we do for politicians? After all, who'd run the country?
1: Is this in the singular or the plural?
0: You did watch the, the debate last night, didn't you? That was so much fun. Yes. My wife made me turn it off.
1: Is the U singular or plural?
0: Here? Some you starts out plural and ends up singular. Starts out, M, U, you collectively. If you collectively do the right thing, and then here's all the individual positives and negatives will happen to you. So it's a little of both.
1: But but, but my my question is, is this, are we talking about individual behavior here, or is it saying that as a society, if a society doesn't do good, then bad things will happen to the society? To individuals. Well, Actually. if they happen to the society, the last individuals in the society as well.
0: Yes. Here, at the beginning... Which isn't personal justice. It's you collectively. If you listen to... If you obey these rules, you the people, we the people, in order to form a more right. perfect union, you, if you the people do the right thing, then you individually will benefit. Your children, you will have lots of kids you will be successful you will thrive individually and you will thrive collectively it's it's it kind of goes back and forth between the collective and the individual in the grammar in in the Hebrew during throughout this uh which is kind of one of the fun interesting aspects of uh of the theology because uh and also it allows those of us who don't subscribe to this theology to um, to read the Torah in a different way, to say, yes, there is uh, crime and punishment. That is, there is there are consequences. And, and for me, when I read the Torah, what I think of written large is the idea of consequences that it's trying to teach, as opposed to individual reality of if I do this, then I'll, then that's automatically going to happen. God is literally watching and deciding what. The exact punishment is going to be if I if I do the wrong thing. It's like um, it, the Jewish mystics, uh, the Zohar, uh, one of the mystical texts, um, who you know read everything on multiple levels. But one of them is literal. And then then what's the literal mean? Uh, one of the things that that they pointed out in this portion, uh, as a commentary in this portion, is that um, we have, according to the Zohar. 248 bones in our bodies and 365 sinews in our bodies. Uh, Those of you who know the details, don't challenge them. 248 bones in our bodies, uh, 365 sinews in our bodies, which of course miraculously corresponds to the 248 positive commandments of the Torah and the 365 negative commandments of the Torah. And therefore... Uh, this is like a chiropractor's dream. Uh, if you have a pain in uh, one of your bones, then you're supposed to figure out what that mitzvah, that bone corresponds to that you obviously either didn't do or did do. You either transgressed a negative commandment or you didn't do a positive commandment. That's the reason that you have that pain in your bone or your sinew. You, know, you pulled a muscle in your leg... It's because it corresponds to you didn't run to do a mitzvah or something like that, um, which is clever and wonderful. and um, I can but,
1: kind of relate this to the Christian idea yes. of individual judgment.
0: Personal and, salvation well, personal judgment, and personal, personal judgment.
1: The personal judgment and the Jewish idea of, seems to kind of be different, but not totally.
0: Yes, it is. It is. On the one hand, wholly different uh, in that we are a communitarian religious civilization and there is no personal salvation in Judaism. There's collective salvation of a different nature uh, because the Christian, of course, the, the classical Christian model is literally personal salvation of your individual soul that you either get saved or you don't get saved based upon your belief. Uh, it's it's belief more than it is uh, practice, although practice has been woven into part of it. But um, it's fundamentally about belief. And in Judaism, uh, the point of the Torah is that your individual behavior either supports the community or detracts from the community. Because the salvation, quote, is the strength and the success and the health, spiritual health of the community. Um, and it's all about we the people, literally um, and peoplehood uh, uh, which is why it was given to the people the Torah um, and it's a very different notion but in this portion and throughout the Torah, I mean after all it's the way God interacts with us in the Torah is uh, sort of carrot and stick also of you know, when you do good things, good things happen. Well, look, is it true or is it not true? In the broad sense, is it true collectively as a people when we pollute the environment, we individually suffer? I just read uh, an article this week somewhere. Um, oh, I get this cute, great uh, bulletin called Bottom Line. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's really little short things about all kinds of stuff. Um uh, comes every month. Uh, and one of the articles was about uh, yes it 's true your food really doesn 't taste as good as it used to that 's basically what the article was about and it was you know chronicling all the things that that you know we know about the changes in in production of our food and uh, how it 's made and where it 's made and and uh, how it was engin- been engineered for the past i mean when I was in college that was a long time ago uh, when I was at UC Davis, I went to UC Davis for my undergraduate. 1967, I graduated high school. So, I was there for the next four years except for the year I was in Israel. Anyway, when I was at Davis, one of my roommates was in ag engineering, because that's a big agricultural school, so was at the time. And my roommate in ag engineering was getting actually his master's in ag engineering and he was working on the uh, tomato and what he was working on was Developing the skin on the tomato for the tomato picking machines. That's what they were working on at the time. That was in 1968. They were developing tomatoes so that the big machines that go roaring through the fields wouldn't destroy the tomatoes, because look how delicate tomatoes used to be. You know, so instead, they engineered skins that were rough enough, tough enough, strong enough, resilient enough that they wouldn't get smashed when a machine (laughs) rolls through them and harvests them. That's just one example of every single thing we eat, which is why everyone's pushing organic, this and small farmers and whatever, if you can still find them anywhere because of what ag engineering has done to our food. It's the, you know, the blessing and the curse, which we talk about all the time. And part of it's here, the blessing and the curse. And sometimes the blessing becomes the curse. And sometimes you can't tell the difference between what's the blessing and what's the curse. Not just sometimes. Most of the time, it's hard in life to know which is the blessing and which is the curse. Because some things that start out being the blessings turn into the curses. Many relationships start that way and end that way. And sometimes it's the opposite. Things that start out you think is the curse. You know, you got fired, you lost your job, get divorced, someone, whatever, things happen and it ends up, with the change in your life that was the best thing that ever happened to you. It happens all the time to almost everybody I know can trace both of those kinds of experiences in their life. You know, that's the way life is. Um, and in fact, that's why in Deuteronomy, the famous, uh, one of the most famous phrases, because we rabbis repeat it all the time, um, is when God says, See, I set before you this day, you know, life and death, good and evil, blessing and curse, therefore choose life. It's like one of those famous things. The thing to pay attention to is that what it, it doesn't say, I set before you life or death, good or evil, blessing or curse, therefore choose. It's, you get it all. Everybody gets life and death. Nobody gets out of this world alive. I mean, that's just the way it is. Depends on your theology, I suppose. But life and death... Blessing and curse, good and evil, we have it all. And and the Torah is wise enough to say, we have it all. This is what life is. The fullness of life is all of it. And keep choosing life and good and blessing anyway, even though some of life feels like a curse, and some of life is we're bumping up against evil, and we're certainly all bumping up against death throughout our life from the moment we're born we're experiencing loss and death deaths of all kinds that's the nature of life and learning to let go and learning to live with that because it's a fundamentally part of who we are so um, to me the the entire Torah and the theology which is uh, when taken literally uncomfortable uh, is not to be taken literally of course that's because I'm this kind of rabbi, um, where I don't take these things literally. And and I've said, I'm sure many times over the years, that that's really my favorite Mordecai Kaplan idea. My favorite Mordecai Kaplan quote was that uh, he once said that the greatest challenge of the modern Jew is to learn how to take the Torah seriously without having to take it literally. And it's my favorite quote of his, because it's like, says everything to me. This is how, all about all of Jewish texts, all of sacred texts, Jewish and everybody else, all of how we wrestle with the things that matter in life is to learn how to take them seriously without having to take them literally. Uh, Somebody wrote all of this, after all. I mean, we only have one of two versions. It it literally dropped from heaven, and God wrote it, or God didn't write it. So if God wrote it, then we should be stoning people to death, I think, who... uh, you know, eat bacon or whatever, uh, which would include me sometimes. So um, I'm glad we don't do that or violate the Sabbath in other ways. Uh, but human beings wrote the Torah and and somebody wrote these stories and somebody uh, wrote all of the ideas and the concepts and the challenges and the mitzvot, uh, some body, some series of them. I don't know who wrote but, um, it, But and to me, it doesn't matter who wrote it. It's our legacy. It's our spiritual legacy. And it continues to be potent and compelling, bless you. We're into the cold version of this room and it it's freezing and then it gets warm and then it gets freezing and then it gets warm. Um, so, so that, so that, that's the, but to me it's the number one challenge, Ekev, it's, it's, I haven't got past the first line, but that's the way I do it I guess. So, the first line is if, it's the if then. If you do good, then. But I do think, in a mega sense, in the, in the sense that matters the most in society, It's true, which is where I started with the pollution thing. When we violate the sort of laws of nature that God has, quote, given us of how to treat the world the way we're supposed to, starting way back in the very first chapter of Genesis, when human beings are created and God says, here's the garden, I give it to you, but you're supposed to tend it. And when we don't tend it anymore and we can't go to the beach because there's something weird there happening that has something to do with whatever we put into it from some place, then there are consequences. And individuals suffer. And there's more cancer than ever. And there's more all kinds of diseases that weren't there everywhere when I was a child that seem to be there everywhere now. And you start looking, where does it come from? And there's so many options of where it comes from starting with the food that we're eating that's now changed and not the same anymore, the clothes that we wear that's now soaked in uh, whatever my dry cleaner used to clean this, and all the other things that we have added, uh, you know, the hundreds of chemicals we create and add into our world every year with very little testing done. It's just the way we are because, you know, we're a consumer society. We're not really... A, that's how we're based. So we create things and then go, oh, oops! Now we'll, we'll take them back. We'll see how it works. But how it works is then already out there in the world. You know, it's like our words; they're hard to take back once we've put them out there. In fact, they're impossible to take back. So, um, so I think, in the broad sense, this—I I believe in this theology—that is, I believe that there are consequences to our behavior, just not in the literal sense. That I think that God is a supernatural being watching. Um, The other thing about this is Ekev, the Hebrew word Ekev, ayin kuf, that uh, should have a ring to it um, that sounds familiar. Um, If you think about our patriarchs, for example, Ekev has a similar sound to Yaakov, Jacob, because it's the same root. Um, and when we're introduced to Jacob, what do we know about Jacob? Heal, you know, so we're told Jacob is a heel grabber. Ekev is a, one of the words for heel. Which is interesting because Hebrew has some really interesting double uses of the language. In this case, it does, it is an if-then. The If you do this and if you pay attention, then, you know, God will be happy. And, but it also literally means Heel, as if you following along, you know, uh, Rashi says that, makes a kind of play on words uh, with this passage and says what really it means is heel as in, you know, stepping down on the ground, um, that if you use your legs, feet to run after literally the mitzvot and pay attention to them, that's what it really means, Then good things happen in the world. Then your life is better. Then God smiles on you in the metaphoric or maybe literal sense, depends on your theology. Um, And if you don't, if you run the other way with your Ekev, then negative things happen in your life. You know? Okay, so turn to page eight, uh, turn to chapter eight. All of that was one gigantic introduction. to echo. there's some very famous phrases in this Torah portion. So, uh, someone want to read other than me, eight, loudly. Eight one. Yeah, just start reading. Ten
1: ninety four.
0: Yeah, ten ninety four on the green, chapter
1: eight. You shall faithfully observe all of the instruction that I enjoin upon you today.
0: You may and increase and be able to possess the land that on oath to your okay, number one wait a minute just number one the number one prize you get if you follow God's laws is what oh, the land it's constantly that and they're on the, that's where they're going remember I mean that's the big prize at the end of the 40 years of schlepping is yay you get Israel so that's always the big prize if you do the right thing you get the land. If you do the wrong thing, I kick you out of the land. So, which of course happens constantly, which reminds us we were always doing the wrong thing. Anyway, keep going. You shall faithfully
1: observe all the instruction that I enjoin upon you today, that you may thrive and increase. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Keep going. Number
0: Or you keep the divine commandments or not? Okay, hang on. Remember the long way that God made you travel in the wilderness. Okay? I, this is like a really interesting idea. Remember the long way that God made you travel. God made you schlep for 40 years. Why? According to this sentence. In order to test you. In order to test you. This was a 40-year journey. Final exam. <clears throat> this is like worse than the LSAT exam or the GRE exam or any of those. Forty years of testing by God. The whole thing was a big test. Now you tell me. Why didn't you just tell? Give me the test at the beginning. See if I pass. Forty years of a test. What? What's the point of the test? According to this? So it's whether you would keep the divine commandments or not. Yeah. Forty years of testing to see. If you're up to it, bless you. Up to what? Up to doing what God wants you to do. Okay, so keep that in mind. This is about testing. Keep going. We'll figure out what the test is. Stop. One of the more famous phrases in the Torah used to be, in its sexist language, man does not live by bread alone. Uh, but in its non-sexist language, human beings don't live by bread alone. This is a really challenging, interesting, almost contradictory, in many ways, idea. That is, God tested you by giving you mana to eat every day. You were hungry, God fed you. How is that a test? What's the test in God feeding you for forty years in the desert, so that you could live by, that you could learn that we don't live by bread alone, the uh, meaning the mana, I guess, because that's what you were eating for forty years. The test was, the test. No. The test was what? Adaptability. Adaptability. So, one of the tests might be that you learn to adapt. Mm-hmm. Okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, clearly, it set up a codependency. You know, you. What, how'd the mana work, anyway? I was once going to write a book, I still might, <laughs> called The Mana Principle. <laughs> Cause I think that's a, it's a, fantastic idea about life in general, the mana principle. How, how did mana work? They woke up, there it was. But
1: it was cooperative, they had to gather it. <laughs>
0: they had to gather it, and then what?
1: Share.
0: They got to eat it.
1: Did they bake
0: it? <laughs> uh, how much could they gather? They
1: whip it up? Double <laughs> portion mixtape for Sabbath.
0: Before Shabbat, a double portion, the rest of the week, just enough. What happens if they gathered, if they were worried about what am I going to eat tomorrow and they, on Monday they gathered enough for today and tomorrow. Remember what happens in the Torah? Anybody remember? It's spoiled. It's spoiled. Mm -hmm. It's spoiled. They could only gather as much as they needed for one day. It was a fantastically brilliant idea. The mana principle. These are my head. The mana principle is... you got to have faith. This is like such enormous faith. Look what we do. We are all in panic about what's going to happen tomorrow. How can I put away this for that? How can I prepare this for that? How can I... We're so into the future, we forget about today. Most of us, that's what anxiety is anyway, right? All of us who are anxious in the world, and neurotic in the world, all the neurosis in the world is, by definition, worrying about something that hasn't happened. I think that is literally the definition. I don't know. But anyway, pretty much so. So pretty much all the neurosis of life that affects most people in the world, or at least us anyway, the United States, we're the most neurotic, I think, country in the world, um, is all about anxiety over what's going to happen, or what might happen, or what could happen, what we better prepare for happening... Which is living in the future, which is impossible, which is why it's neurotic. Trying to live in the future, which is, means you're not living, period. Because you could only live now, 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 now. There only is now. There is nothing but now. In the, you know, it's only right now. So, what makes us crazy is trying to do the impossible. Which is not living now, trying to live in the, some, what might be. There's no what might be. There's only this. The mono principle is now, today. Today, here's the food for today. Trust me. Basically, God's saying, have faith. You will be provided for tomorrow. Have faith today that you are provided for today. You wake up, and one of the morning prayers in our series of morning prayers, the morning prayers traditional Jewish morning prayers I think are the smartest thing we ever created. Brilliant. Because the in the list of the traditional things that we pray about in the morning, first of all, it's all about gratitude. Starting your day with gratitude. Which is really what the story portion is about, by the way. The story portion, which I haven't got to, yeah, there's still time. I, I'm sure I will. It's really all about gratitude. It's all about how you approach the world, how you live in the world. And how you learn to appreciate that which has been given to you. In this case, it's by God. That's the theology of the Torah, is God gives us all the benefits of our lives, starting with the world, starting with our lives, starting with everything. And that when we live our lives out of gratitude, then we truly live spiritually whole in our lives. So, one of the prayers in the tr- long list of traditional morning one-liners that there is in the morning prayers, thanks God for providing us with all that we need. All right. Thank you God for providing us with cold sore key. All that I need. Uh, I, I love that prayer because when I say them in the morning, which I do, um, it reminds me that I have all that I need. Doesn't mean I have all that I want, but want and need are not the same thing, and it helps to ground me in reminding me, oh yeah, I do have all that I need, even though I may want all kinds of stuff, you know, and it helps calm me down, which is not easy for me, calm me down, uh, and ground me, which is one of the reasons I say those prayers every morning, um, starting with, thank you, God. Mode that I woke up. Um, and the older
1: you get, you more grateful that
0: you just wake up. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, I was telling a few people that, who came in the very beginning that uh, my wife unfortunately has pneumonia at the moment, so it's been a been a, a restless week. Uh, um, I haven't slept all week, but because uh, she has slept all week, uh, fever and things. Well, at the beginning of the week now, fever's gone. Um, But, you know, when you're not well, and we've had a lot of other things in the community and people in the hospital and um, funerals and things this week, one of the privileges of being a rabbi, even an allegedly retired rabbi, is um, a constant reminder of the blessing of health and the blessing of waking up and the blessing of the body parts that work and Every time something doesn't work, it reminds you of most of the time I take for granted that all my fingers are going to do this, you know, unless they don't. Um, And that's part of what this is about. Part of what this is about is being conscious of um, the gifts of life. Uh, the, The mana idea that God is God providing. God provides sustenance. Where does sustenance come from? You know sustenance comes in Jewish tradition from God in partnership with us that's why the you know the prayer before you eat is baruch atah hamotzi lechem min haaretz bread human beings don't live by bread alone bread's a symbol of all of our sustenance in Jewish tradition that's that prayer is a symbol of Of gratitude for sustenance, well, the Motzi is a great prayer. It's also one of my favorite prayers because it's not true. It literally we thank God for bringing forth bread from the earth. Come on, that's a ridiculous prayer. How does God bring forth bread from the earth? I don't. I've never gone out to a bread farm yet. You know, go out to the to the fields and go pick your rye bread. Or your challah, or your, it doesn't happen that way, right? That that's how do we get bread?
1: We're to with God, partnership.
0: Food. Yeah, you got to make bread. You know, you can grow tomatoes. Really cool, those tomatoes are look gorgeous. You can grow tomatoes, but you can't grow bread. You have to grow wheat or rye or whatever it is we make bread out of, and then you have to. Then you got the raw stuff of it. Then you have to figure out how to make bread out of it. You know, I don't do it. But, you know, I, I make bread by going to Gelson's. That's how I make bread. But, you know, human beings in partnership with God. God, that's how we make bread. And yet we, in our tradition, give God credit, ha lechem min ha We give God credit for bringing forth bread from the earth because... We give God credit for everything, including our intelligence and our ability to be partners with God in taking the raw stuff of the universe that God has given us and building all of this. How do we have this building here? You know, God didn't create that either. And all the things, I'm wearing a microphone for goodness sake, you know, God didn't create that. All of the stuff that we have that's our civilization that is what provides us with our sustenance and our ability to thrive and survive is not God given in the sense that some supernatural being, you know, has a hand that comes down and says here, here's a cup from Starbucks, you know, or whatever. It's that we have the creativity and the intelligence to take the raw stuff of the universe and transform it Into this, the remarkable civilization that we keep building and evolving and creating. And, uh, my wife is, uh, gonna be healed from her, uh, pneumonia because she's taking antibiotics. God willing. Taking, she's taking antibiotics. Uh, You know, we have a, uh, lifespan, not our lifespan, we have a life expectancy. Our lifespan's pretty much been the same for most of our history, but our expectancy of how many of us are going to live longer is uh, twice as long now as it was in the beginning of the 20th century. Literally twice as long. Human beings aren't that different. We've, the lifespan of human beings is pretty much the same, but more of us are getting closer to it. Because of what we created, because whoa, antibiotics in 1946 or something like that was invented, something like that, and all of a sudden changed the world. You know, we changed the world by that, and all the you know, and all the other things that we do. Um, our immediate past president Mike Lurie had a heart surgery this past week, um, scheduled heart surgery uh, that he's recovering from. Wouldn't have done that. 50 years ago we wouldn't have had that heart surgery with all those things that went in there and changing and doing whatever of his valves and his whatever you know we just died earlier <laughs> all of us that's all so but that's our partnership and that's part of what the fundamental uh, theology for me of the Torah is about it's is uh, life's a test in many ways i give you the opportunity that you have to take so here God is saying, you are hungry, I fed you. Where's the test in that exactly? Still.
1: The test is that you could be satisfied with what you have.
0: Yes. The test is how quickly we forget. (laughs) How quickly we think Look how good I am. <laughs> Look at this. I got nice clothes. I got a nice house. Look at what a success I am. Look at how smart I am. Look at I created in my life. And in fact, God specifically says, when you go into the land in this portion, somewhere that, coming next, when you cross over and you have success and your fields produce, Don't forget about me. Don't say, look what I did. Look what I did. Look how smart I am. (sighs) Who needs God? I can do this by myself. That's the mana test is how quickly and easily we take for granted our successes and our blessings and our sustenance and all that we're given and suddenly hold up a mirror and go, I did this. I did this. I did this. You know, it's like this. My experience with people is when tragedies happen, very often, people will say, where was God? People of a certain theology will say, particularly if it's this. So I started out with, that. could bad things happen to good people in this theology? So therefore, when tragedies happen, which do happen to most people at some point or another, one of the typical responses is, what happened to God? Where is there justice in the world? I never heard anybody say that if they win the lottery. I never heard anybody say that when they go to Vegas and they hit a jackpot. I never heard anybody say, I got the job, where was God? Ha! I had to do that all by myself. You know? When good things happen, nobody asks the same question. Why not? Kind of, that's like crazy. Because we're humans and we take credit for the things that we do that's good, and we blame somebody else for things that happen that are bad. So you know, when you're a parent raising your child, one of the greatest challenges is learning is teaching your child to take personal responsibility for the consequences of his or her own behavior, because human nature is to look for a scapegoat for somebody. It's somebody else's fault. It's. You feel better if it's somebody else's fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. I try, but that bully, that this, that, 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 whatever. Somebody else's fault. The teacher picks on me. In my case, it was always true. The teacher was always picking on me. But, you know, I was one of those kids that the teacher somehow magically always knew my name after the first day of class. I don't know how that happened. Every year, they always knew my name. In any event, the um, just, you know... But that, that's human nature. Human nature is to blame other people for things that go wrong, to take credit for everything that goes right. And that is the test. That's the fundamental test. is how to still maintain your sense of gratitude to God when things are going well it almost seems like a contradiction. That should be the time when you are most conscious of being grateful and appreciative and acknowledging the gifts that you've been given, except for it's not human nature. Yeah.
1: How do you fit that into the whole Reconstructionist philosophy? There is no God up there, so who are you being grateful
0: to? So what do you think? To each
1: other. It's not a who. It's not
0: so how, how would anybody else. Yeah, What do you mean?
1: That that the the act of gratefulness is it's a quality of who we are and, and it's a position we take in life relative to what happens to us. And it's not I mean you can use the poetic words as if it were a person, but the grateful I, I can be grateful that something happened without necessarily hooking it to a person thing. So I, I don't have a... I mean, you can use the poetic thing, but just because we don't believe that there is a person up there doesn't mean we can't be grateful. One becomes a certain kind of person, one has a certain kind of an orientation in life if one has gratefulness in one's life.
0: So I don't know. So, so here's um, I, I recite the traditional I mentioned before, a whole series of traditional blessings in the morning, uh, and they're all about God. I mean, that's you know, literally, it's Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam something, because that's the Jewish formula for prayer. So it's literally, it's you know, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, something um, who heals the sick, Rophe Cholim. That's one of them. Got some healers in here. Rofay Cholim, that's one of the traditional ones. So I say those words, say it all the time, Baruch Attarunayel al Alam, not because I believe there is, that God is a king or a ruler of the universe somewhere who's pulling strings and either heals Michael Lurie or heals my wife from her pneumonia or doesn't, but because I am grateful for the, the reality of healing in the world. I am grateful for all of the, the inspiration that human beings bring to the challenges of illness and dis-ease that results in the opportunity and all of the medications and all the other miraculous things, uh, that allow us to heal. And I see that as, uh, it's part of the sort of spiritual nature of the universe that we have the opp- that, that we heal from. from and I, I see it as a miracle, actually. I see my body as the most miraculous gift I've been given, that I'm a self-healing organism, which I, if I were smarter, I'd probably be able to, like some of you in the room, I'd probably be able to tell us exactly how. But I know, to me, the miracle is I cut myself and I heal myself. You know, I know it's going to heal. Uh, I'm not a hemophiliac, so I, fortunately, so when I cut myself, I don't just keep bleeding. It uh, coagulates, does all these things, and but you know better than I do. But it heals. Uh, that is what I think of when I say Baruch Ata Cholim, bless you, Adonai, our God, ruler the universe, who heals the sick. I don't think of it literally. I think of it like Kaplan said in the beginning: uh, the challenge of taking the Torah and all and prayer seriously without taking it literally. So to me, the seriousness of it is the miracle of our ability to heal, and our urging that 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 restlessness in the human spirit that constantly is looking for new ways of of bringing about healing, whether it's with cancer or whether it's all the other things that some of you in the room work on all the time. Um, so I think you can. You, the Reconstructionist approach to me is using the language of our tradition through a different lens. Using the language... Uh, I mean, we have other versions, and the Reconstructionist movement created other versions other than Baruch Atah Elohim which is also sexist and male and all the other stuff. Um, I use it anyway, um, I, but I use it um, knowing that it's sexist. I use it because it, of its emotional connection with me to the couple thousand years of we've been saying Baruch It's the only reason I, I say it because I feel like I'm part of the stream of of sort of Jewish life that way and I don't think of it as a male in the sky doing it anyway um, I mean I know we could have an argument about that but
1: Best, best exclamation,
0: exclamation Explanation.
1: <laughs> I've heard of that was from you when you called it spiritual, spiritual poetry
0: uh, Yeah Right. And I think if what a smart guy I am. Yeah. No, if
1: you look at yeah, that's how I look at spiritual it. Spiritual poetry, it takes on a completely different sense.
0: Yeah. Well, that's how I see it. Yeah. It does, I do see poetry. Poetry. it as spiritual poetry.
1: science?
0: Yeah. I mean, look, poetry. We we don't. That's how we do poetry. You know, I love you with all my heart, is a poetic <laughs> statement. Some of you play around with hearts literally. You know, and you see, how can you love someone? With, it's a muscle pumping blood, right? So. If if I said I love you with my muscle pumping blood, it doesn't quite have carry the same, you know, imagery as I love you with all my heart. But we all know what what I mean if I say I love my wife with all my heart, and we like it, you know, and it makes us warm and fuzzy. I love her with all my heart, um, even though we, and we don't take it literally. We take it symbolically. We take it metaphorically. We take it. It's a spiritual. And to me, all of. It, Prayer is spiritual poetry, and the Torah is spiritual poetry. Um, And so that's why it's... And it's someone's brilliant spiritual poetry. So uh, the whole idea of God saying, I tested you, because when you were hungry, I fed you, to me is God saying... um, What um, Sforno, who's a 16th century Italian commentator, Sforno, Sforno said, I have his comment somewhere. Svorno said, "We must obey God even in the midst of plenty." (laughs) Especially, you know, he wasn't a dummy. You gotta, you gotta do the right thing even when you're successful, because the tendency is to go, "It's all about me," you know. And that's that hubris is one of the greatest challenges of spiritual life. The arrogance of self- arrogance is what separates us and turns us into monsters. Literally, in the world. That's what does it. It separates us out of that arrogance of power, the arrogance of, I, I know I'm right, and I don't want to hear anything else, is why we end up with dictators and why we end up with... Donald the... Trump. <laughs> yeah. No, Donald Trump is a whole different thing. Donald Trump is an entertainer. That's a whole different thing. Um, But it was kind of clever how somehow he managed to set the whole agenda for everybody else's conversations. In any event, um, but yeah, you know, you end up with people who are sort of demagogues. Um, Yes, for sure in politics, because it's power. You know, people like power. But that's part of what the the Taurus message is. It's about trying to counter our tendency for domination and power. And to try to mitigate it with, there's something bigger than Fred. You know? That was from a different story. But anyway, you know, there's something bigger than the king. There's melcha'olam. There's the king of the world. Which is why, really, why that language came about. The language of, of our formula of prayer. Calling God Melech Ha'olam, the king of the universe, the king of the world, was because we had kings. We needed someone bigger than our king to say there's a power bigger than the, Fred the king. There's a power that we have to, that transcends that. There's the, the creator of the universe that's beyond any of us that's worth paying attention to. Anyway, yeah, sorry.
1: I was thinking how it, you know, it applies very much um, to the, not necessarily the, the politically powerful, but the, you know, the financially powerful. And I, you know, the, I made everything myself. Right. And when you continue to have that sense of gratitude, whether or not you think it's to a supreme being, but just that general, general sense of gratitude for everything, I think it makes you. More likely to be mindful of those who do not have it, and continue to try. In the Bill Gates model versus some other
0: type of who right. don't like the, everything that they have they earn themselves and don't own. Th- that's the Donald Trump model, <laughs> right? I mean, clearly that's the Donald Trump model. Is look what I did. He kept saying it last night. Look what I did. So what? I did all that. Look what I did. Look what I built. I always successful. At everything. Yeah, in, I think in Jewish theology, there's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. I think that's sort of the punchline of that. There's no such thing as a self-made man or woman. You know, we are all interrelated and we are all gifted from God with our abilities to do what we do and fundamentally need to be grateful. The Talmud uh, says... It's a bad sentence because the Talmud really doesn't say anything, but um, that's how rabbis talk. The Talmud says that... You are forbidden to enjoy anything from this world without saying a blessing over it. For that reason, so that you're always conscious that everything's a gift. Every food you eat, everything you do, the clothes you wear, the relationships you have, that that anything you enjoy in this world needs to be preceded by saying thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for this food. Thank you for this everything. Um, And if you do that, which is why we have these morning prayers, again, it's to wake up and put lenses on the go. Gratitude changes the way you see the world. You know, when you start out with a list of all the things you're grateful for. Oprah Winfrey got kept doing that. You know, don't go to bed without writing down your gratitude list or something. Well, Judaism says don't get up in the morning without starting out being grateful Thank you, God I woke up. Thank you, God, for my body. It sort of goes through the list of things to be thankful for. Thank you for all these things. Poker Ivrim, who opens our eyes, who heals the sick, who lifts the fallen, who frees the captives. I mean these are all these lists that's part of the morning prayers. When I say them, I don't think about God as some being. I think about people get are freed from it's still true that people are enslaved in the world. And that there are people out there working to free those people from slavery. And there are people incarcerated who get freed. And if someone's out there with the DNA projects, freeing people who are unjustly have been put in jail for 30 years and stuff like that. To me, that's holiness. That's godliness. That's what God's about in my Reconstructionist theology. It's not about God, it's about godliness. And and the more I'm conscious of that opportunity and ability and responsibility... That's the other thing, that that starting with this and through rabbinic literature, we're constantly being hammered on. It's our responsibility to be grateful and to be conscious of, to imitate God. So when I have this list of morning prayers about what, quote, God allegedly does, frees the sick, I mean, heals the sick and frees the captives and feeds the hungry and clothes the naked and all of those things... It's the the traditional list of what God does, even though we don't have a supernatural being doing that. I know that I am supposed to be made in God's image, so I guess I'm the one. This is how God does that in the world. These are God's hands. These are God's eyes. This is what I'm always saying, because that's the way Jewish theology from a reconstruction lens is all about. This is how God works in the world. We have the, whatever that project's called. It's not the DNA project. The Innocence Project. The Innocence Project, yeah. The Innocence Project. We have all those things. You know, we have people writing brilliant books and things like that. So that we bring our own creativity, Are we selling them or passing them out or doing something. you <laughs> M- mentioned that? Uh, if you haven't read her book, you should be reading the book. Yeah, what, when's your next like uh, event? You have an event coming up, don't you? Um, yes, I'm at the beach tomorrow. And- tomorrow. oh yeah I, w- I wanted to go to that but I a- I have a comic and the name of your book is Shelter Us. Shelter brilliant book I say that because I read it good book right We know are you proud because it's like really good it's cool really cool. But it's so much of what you were
1: just saying is what the character...
0: is. Yeah, that's what the book's about. Right. Yeah.
1: Trying
0: to be God. Trying to do the right thing, and okay. yeah. This is it fiction? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good book, though. Good fiction. Um, from one of our own. We all take credit for that. <laughs> I know she wrote it, but I think the rest of us could... Right, that's right. We all take credit for all the successes of all of our people. I take credit for all of you. You know that. Do you know what? I got in my congregation, and then I just people doing this, doing this great research, doing this, writing poetry, doing translations, doing. We have an amazing group. Anyway, so but that's also it's doing the right thing, allowing that that spark of the divine within you that to flourish, and then not just going, look how great I am, but along with being proud of what you are, having gratitude for how you got here because you didn't get here alone. You know, I mean, I wrote a, a wonderful book and she's got six pages of acknowledgements. But, you know, because all the authors, that's why they have acknowledgement pages because nobody just does it out of whole cloth. Everybody does it with the help and inspiration and work with a million other people. Everything we create You know, people do amazing research about... Nobody just does it by themselves. They do it with collaboration with everybody. And that's part of what this is about. The clothes... That you wore didn't wear out. No, did your feet swell these 40 years? That's one of my favorite lines of the Torah. Your feet didn't swell. What was the benefit of 40 years of wandering in the desert? You walked in the desert for 40 40 years, and your feet didn't swell. What could be more miraculous than that? Not anything. Unless it said your feet didn't smell. That would have been a whole different thing. But didn't swell for 40 years. Bear in mind that your God disciplines you just as a householder. A parent disciplines his or her son. Therefore keep the commandments of your God, walk in God's ways, and show reverence. It's it's all about that. God gives you this remarkable land, you'll lack nothing. And if you turn the page, just to end that paragraph, verse ten, when you have eaten your fill, give thanks to your God for the good land given you. The Hebrew for that is Vachalta. That phrase is contained in the traditional birkat hamazon. So any of you know the traditional blessing of gratitude thanks after a meal, this phrase from the Torah of achalta, the savata uveirachta, is taken out of here and you ate and you were satisfied and you give, and you blessed. And you said thank you. <laughs> it, it, it acts as if it's the fact that you ate and you were satisfied and you said blessings, even though we know we don't always do that. But clearly that's the idea that's the and the ideal, which is to express gratitude to God for the blessings of sustenance in all of its forms. In this case, it's food but really it's in all of its forms sustenance isn't just food it's relationships it's community it's the clothes that we clothes we wear it's all of the every aspect of society that allows us to live and to flourish and to continue to uh, to function